0: Welcome to the Whitefields Community Church Podcast. For more information about our church, including location and service times, visit us online at whitefieldschurch.com. If you are blessed by this message, please consider sharing it with others and leaving a rating or review on your favorite podcast app. Today's message comes from our series, Equipped to Serve, a study in Paul's pastoral epistles. Here's Pastor Nick.
1: Good morning, everyone. Nice to see you all. Please open in your Bibles to the book of Titus. We're currently studying through the pastoral epistles on Sunday mornings. We've worked our way through 1 Timothy. Last week, we finished 2 Timothy. And this week, we get into the book of Titus. So go ahead and bow your heads one more time as we pray. So Heavenly Father, as we open your word now, we ask that you would give us insight, give us understanding But Lord, help us that we would respond to your word in the way that is appropriate. Lord, that we might be transformed and changed by the power of your spirit through your word. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this man, he didn't have a lot of friends. But what he lacked in friends, he made up for in money. And he had a lot of it. He was rich and he was powerful. And yet, despite all the money that he had... Zacchaeus was not content. You see, he felt that something was missing in his life. On top of that, Zacchaeus was plagued by guilt over some of the things that he had done, the ways that he had gotten rich by defrauding other people. Zacchaeus was a tax collector, you see, and not just any tax collector, but it tells us that he was the chief tax collector. In the dog eat dog world of tax collectors, Zacchaeus was the top dog. And you know, tax collectors in that day were hated, they were despised for a couple reasons. One of them is because this they were Jewish people who were collaborating with and working for the occupying Roman forces, collecting taxes from the people. And here's how it worked. Rome would require a certain amount of money, right? Kind of a quota. You bring in this amount of money. But anything they brought in above and beyond that amount was theirs to keep. So entrepreneurial people, it was the perfect situation for them. And so not only were they considered traitors who collaborated with the Roman occupiers, but tax collectors were also hated because they were liars and extortionists. They would show up at your door and they'd say, you owe $1,000 in taxes, for example. Now, Rome only actually required $200, but they would keep that extra $800 just for themselves. And if you didn't want to pay, well, they would have thugs there ready to beat you up or maybe even put you in prison. You see, one day though, Zacchaeus, this chief of the tax collectors, he heard that Jesus was passing through his city, the city of Jericho where he lived. Zacchaeus had heard about Jesus. He knew that Jesus had something that he didn't have, but that he desperately wanted and yet Zacchaeus had a problem. He was vertically challenged, right? And so Zacchaeus ran ahead of the crowds. He climbed up in a tree so that he would be sure to get a good look at Jesus as Jesus passed by. And when Jesus did pass by on that way where Zacchaeus was hanging out there in that tree, he looked up and he saw Zacchaeus, and somehow he recognized him. Maybe Zacchaeus' reputation preceded him. Jesus had heard about this man, the chief of the tax collectors, who ripped people off and threatened them with violence. And he called Zacchaeus to come down from that tree. And Jesus invited himself over to Zacchaeus' house that day as a guest. And when the people of Jericho saw that, that Jesus was going to this man's house, they were scandalized. They were incensed. Doesn't doesn't Jesus know who this guy is? This Zacchaeus, he's a bad man. He's the exact kind of person for which the judgment of God is coming upon the earth. There's a special place in hell for people like him. But Jesus went to Zacchaeus' house, and they shut the door. And we don't know what happened behind those closed doors. We don't know the conversation that was had behind those closed doors. But we do know the result. Because it says in Luke chapter 19, verse 8, it says that as a result of their conversation, Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, he said, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Now that's important because do you know that to pay someone back four times what you defrauded them is actually in the law of Moses in the Old Testament. That was the requirement of the law of Moses for those who had defrauded someone was to pay them back four times. So now we see Zacchaeus doing what the Bible says to do. And look at how Jesus responds when Zacchaeus says that he's going to do that. Jesus doesn't say, good job, or right on. That was the right thing to do. No, look at what Jesus says. He says, today, salvation has come to this house. What a strange and interesting thing to say, don't you think? I mean, I would have said, good job, Zacchaeus, or right on, Zacchaeus. But Jesus doesn't say that. He says, today, salvation has come to this house. Why would he say that? You know, Most of the time, when I hear people use that word salvation, when they use it, what they mean is that your sins are forgiven and you will go to heaven when you die. Now, certainly salvation does mean that. It doesn't mean less than that. But what Jesus is showing us here is that actually salvation means more than that. When Jesus talked about salvation in regard to Zacchaeus, it was a much more holistic type of salvation. It changed his life, not only spiritually, but also morally, and it changed his life socially. When Zacchaeus repented of his sins and when he turned to Jesus, it changed his identity, his standing before God, but it also changed the way he acted morally, and it changed the way he related to other people socially. It was true salvation through and through, And Jesus concludes this section by saying this, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. As we get into the book of Titus this morning, we're going to be looking at the richness of the salvation that God has made available to us through Jesus. And we're going to see what that salvation means for your life and for mine practically. The title of today's message is The God Who Saves. And here's what we're going to see in Titus chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. We're going to see that God's saving grace in Jesus changes your identity transforms your affections and sends you out in love to the world. I'll give you that sentence one more time. That's going to be our outline for studying this passage. We're going to go through these verses and follow that guide. But I want you to take that thought with you. I'd love for you to write that down in your notes and take that thought. Let it stew in your head as you go about your week this week. So one more time. God's saving grace in Jesus Changes your identity, transforms your affections, and sends you out in love to the world. So, the first part of that, God's saving grace, first thing it does, it changes your identity. Paul the Apostle, he begins this letter with these words. He says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect. Paul wrote this letter to a man named Titus. We're going to talk about him a little bit later on. But at this time, here's what you need to know. Titus was serving as a pastor on the Greek island of Crete. Now, along with giving his name here in the introduction, Paul introduces himself using two titles. First, he describes himself as a servant of God, and then he says that he is an apostle of Jesus Christ. By calling himself a servant, Paul is communicating humility, right? That he is submitted to the will of God. He's not here to do his own program. He's here to do what God has called him to do. But here's what's really interesting. Did you know that this is the only place in all of Paul's letters where Paul refers to himself as the servant of God? Now, you might be saying, are you sure, Nick? Yes, I'm sure. But here's the other thing. In some of his letters, he refers to himself as a servant of Christ. Now, you might say, come on, man, that's so close. Same thing, right? Well, there is actually a pretty significant difference. And here's why. Because this term, servant of God, has a very rich and storied history throughout the Old Testament. It's loaded with (laughs) theological baggage, if you will. You see, the term servant of God, it has this rich history throughout the Old Testament in that it's used of only a few select people. It's used of Abraham. It's used of Moses. It's used of David. It's used of the prophet Isaiah, and you know who else it's used of? It's used of the Messiah himself. And so by introducing himself, not only as a servant of Christ, but be using this loaded term, a servant of God, Paul is placing himself in that lineage of people that God has used throughout history to proclaim his truth and carry out his work in the world. It's a heavy, heavy, weighty term to call yourself a servant of God. And that's what Paul does here. And related to that is the second title that Paul uses to introduce himself, where he says that he is an apostle of Jesus Christ. The word apostle, it means one who is sent, one who is commissioned, sent out on a mission, an emissary, if you will, you know, the word apostle, it means one who is sent. But you know what else? The Bible calls Jesus. It uses this title of Jesus. It tells that Jesus is our great apostle. Because why? Jesus was sent by the Father on a mission. And then Jesus himself commissioned others who also bore that title of apostle. People who were sent, commissioned, sent out on this mission, emissaries, And they played a key role in that first foundational generation of the church because of their direct connection to Jesus. So in this opening section, Paul is giving us his identity. His identity is this. I'm a servant of God, and I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. But here's what's interesting. Do you realize that that wasn't always Paul's identity? He didn't always have this identity. Prior to becoming a Christian, Paul had a very different identity, In his letter to the Philippians, Paul talks about who he was prior to knowing Jesus and following him. Prior to becoming a Christian, Paul was a Pharisee. You remember those guys? That group of people who were always opposing Jesus? Rather than following Jesus, Paul opposed Jesus, and he persecuted Christians. Additionally, Paul says that at that time, before he was a Christian, Paul found his identity in things like his ethnicity, Right? That's where he found his value and his worth as a person. His identity was found in his education, in his ethnicity, and the fact that he considered himself to be a good person, certainly superior to other people. Friends, I would tell you, isn't that the way that many people today find their identity, their education, their ethnicity, their nationality, and most of all in the fact that they consider themselves to be a good person, at least certainly better than some other people they know. But one day, for the Apostle Paul, that house of cards that he had built his identity on, it collapsed. And he realized he was not actually as good of a person as he previously thought. His eyes were open to see that he was, in fact, he says, a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent person. He was a sinner. And as a sinner, he understood that he was subject to God's judgment. But as Paul turned to Jesus in faith, as Paul repented of his old ways, he received mercy and says that God's grace overflowed to him. And Paul received a new identity. He went from being a sinner to being a saint, from being a blasphemer and a persecutor to being a servant of God and an apostle. He went from being self-righteous to being justified by faith in Jesus. And Paul says here in verse one of Titus chapter one, that as an apostle, he says, I'm an apostle for what? For the sake of the faith of God's elect. You know that term, God's elect, that refers to the people for whom Jesus died. The people for whom Jesus died. To be part of the elect means that you have been brought into God's family. You, you are part of that adopted, redeemed family of God. You have become a child of God through faith in Jesus, those who are being saved through faith in him. That's what it means to be part of the elect. When you put your faith in Jesus and you follow him, what happens is you receive a new identity. Some of the things which used to define you no longer apply to you. They're no longer true of you. And and other things that might still define you about your job, your ethnicity, etc., Those things now become secondary to your primary identity, which is who you are in relation to God and what Jesus has done for you. Now, first of all, your status in terms of your legal standing before God, it changes. You're declared righteous. You're justified and made right with God, just as if you'd never sinned. Rather than being dead in your transgressions, you're made alive in Christ. Rather than being condemned, you're forgiven. Rather than being a child of wrath, you are now called a child of God. And it's not because of anything you did, it's because of what Jesus did for you. And you know what this identity does? It changes your destiny, and it changes the way you live here and now. You know, to be saved, when we use this term salvation, To be saved implies that you were lost. It implies that God did something for you that you could not do for yourself. And along with this new identity also comes a new sense of belonging. You aren't just a lone individual, an island unto yourself. No, no, no. Now you are a member of the elect. You are part of the global body of Christ. You know, it's very popular in our day and age to talk about having a personal relationship with Jesus. You know, we ask, hey, do you have a personal relationship with Jesus? And you know what? That's a good thing. It's good to have a personal relationship. You should. Every person needs to have a relationship with Jesus. No one else can do it for you. But understand this, that personal relationship we, you have with Jesus, it makes you part of something which is bigger than just you and Jesus. It makes you part of this global body of Christ. You now have a new identity. You're part of a body. You're a member of a family. And as such, you know what? You have a role to play and a ministry to fulfill. Listen, the other parts of the body, they need you. They need you to show up and fulfill your role in the body. So this Part of this salvation that we receive in Jesus is that it changes our identity. But that's not all. Let's look at the next part of this. God's saving grace in Jesus, not only does it change your identity, but it also transforms your affections. Speaking about his role as a servant of God and as an apostle for the sake of the faith of God's elect, Paul then says, and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. In First Timothy chapter 2, remember 1 Timothy? In 1 Timothy chapter 2, we're told this, that God, our Savior, desires that all people would be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Notice what Paul says here in Titus 1 verse 1. He says that this truth, right, the things that God wants us to know and believe, this truth does what? It accords with godliness. One of the most important themes of this book of Titus, as we're going to see as we go through it, is that one of the results of truly being saved by God is that being saved by God changes the way that you live here and now. It changes the way you live practically. And what it does is it accords with godliness. It causes you to become more godly. Later on in the same chapter, Paul says something that a lot of Bible readers look at and they're like, Wow, that is a little bit strange and also very interesting. Here's what he says. He Remember, Titus was serving on the island of Crete, and listen to what Paul says about the people of Crete in verse 12. He says, "One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, "Cretans are always liars, evil beasts and lazy gluttons." It's like, "Wow, Paul, that was not very nice. What are you trying to say? right? Um, now here's the deal. The reason Paul brings that up is to point out, these are the kinds of things which are normally true of these people of Crete. This is who they were. These are the things that characterized their life prior to them experiencing the power of God's saving grace in their lives. But now, not only have they received a new identity— But that new identity has also changed their behaviors morally. It's changed their behaviors morally. You see, in the same way that different kinds of creatures have different instincts and desires, part of God's work of making you a new creation in Christ is that God gives you new affections and new desires. Augustine, the early church father, he said this. He said, "What." defines a person most, what makes you who you are at your core, is defined by what you love. In other words, what defines a person most is what they love. Therefore, if you really want to change a person, or if you want to be changed yourself, what needs to change is what you love. And you might say, well, how do I change what I love? How do you change what somebody else loves? And he said, the only way to change what somebody loves is by showing them something which is more lovely than the thing which they desired previously. It isn't just say, stop loving that thing. No, no. no. You have to show them something better, something more beautiful, something more desirous than the things which they longed for and sought after previously. You know, That is what God does for us by his grace and through his word. He shows us that his ways are better and more beautiful than the things which we previously desired apart from him. How many of you remember the story of the Odyssey? I had to read it when I was in school. Maybe you did too. But the Odyssey by Homer, right? It's this famous Greek epic. And in the the story of the Odyssey, here's what happened. This man named Odysseus, he's traveling home on his journey from the Trojan War. So he was in the Trojan War, and he's on his journey home, and the story of the Odyssey is the story of his journey. And along the way, Odysseus faces many perils and many challenges. But by far, the biggest challenge that he faces on this journey is the island of the sirens. You see, the sirens are these creatures who look like beautiful women. And they sing this song that is so enchanting, so beautiful, that the sailors can't resist it. They're just drawn to it. And what they do is they steer their ships towards this island. But whenever they do, they crash their ships on the rocks and they die. Because even though the sirens sing a beautiful song and they look like beautiful women, they're actually deadly monsters who are going to eat them alive. It's a trap. But here's the thing, even though they know it's a trap, even though they know that it's coming, sailors can't resist it. They can't resist the allure of the siren song. And inevitably they'll hear that song. And even though they know that it's gonna kill them, they'll steer their ships towards these rocks, crash on the rocks and be killed by the sirens. You know what that is, right? That story, it's a picture of temptation. That's what it is. It's an analogy about our lives. It's an analogy about temptation. And here's what it's asking. It's asking the question that all of us deal with. How do you overcome temptation? Because this is what happens, right? You experience temptations in your life, things that promise you beauty and enjoyment and satisfaction. But in fact, if you give in to those temptations, they will hurt you and even destroy you. And so what do you do? How can you overcome temptation when it comes your way? Well, here's what Odysseus does in the Odyssey. In order to make it past the island of the sirens, Odysseus fills his sailors' ears with wax so they cannot hear the song of the sirens. But before he does that, he says, I want you guys to tie me to the mast of the ship. Bind me to the mast of the ship so that I can't get away. Restrain me. And then We're going to fill your ears with wax. And no matter how much I plead with you, no matter how much I cry, don't release me from my restraints until we get past the island of the sirens. So here's what happens. They do that. They tie him up. They fill their ears with wax. They start rowing. And Odysseus is there and he hears the song of the sirens and he starts shouting and screaming for them to let him loose because he wants to give in to the temptation. He wants to go, even though he knows that it will kill him. He screams and shouts for the sailors to untie him. But because he's restrained, and because the rowers can't hear anything anyway, they successfully make it past the island of the sirens. In other words, what this is showing us is that one way to deal with temptation is to restrain yourself, to avoid encountering the temptation, to cover your eyes and close your ears. But you know what the problem with that is? Well, we see it there with Odysseus. It didn't actually change his desires. All it did was hold him back. And you know what that means? That means that restraining yourself and avoiding temptation is not a long-term solution because it doesn't actually change anything about you. And here's what is really interesting. About 500 years after Homer wrote the Odyssey, there was another book that was written called Argonautica, And that book was also about a sea journey in the Aegean Sea. And in that story, the sailors also had to pass by the Island of the Sirens, but the Argonauts took a different approach to dealing with temptation than the one that Odysseus had taken. Rather than stuffing their ears with wax, rather than tying themselves to the mast to restrain themselves, here's what the Argonauts did. They brought with them on the boat, a great musician. And this great musician, when it came time to pass the island of the sirens, they had this musician get out his instrument and play a song that was louder and more beautiful than the song of the sirens. And because their ears were filled with that sweeter song, they were no longer tempted by the siren's song. Friends, I want to tell you, the love of God the truth of his word is that sweeter song. And when your heart and your mind is filled with that sweeter song, you know what it does? It drowns out all these siren songs of this world. As you come to know the love of God, as you're transformed by the renewing of your mind, as you study God's word, the Holy Spirit does this work inside of you of changing your affections, transforming your affections. You begin to see God and as you do, you begin to love him more and you're transformed from being a lover of self to being a lover of God. And as you grow in love for God, it causes your desires to change. You begin to love what he loves and desire what he desires. And your desires for other things, things that harm rather than help, those desires begin to diminish to the point where even the thought of them can even become repulsive to you. That's why later on in this letter, Paul is going to explain to us how the grace of God which has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, he says, rather than giving us an excuse to sin more because God will forgive us anyway, right? No, no, he says, listen, when you really encounter the grace of God, you know what it does? It actually leads you to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. It causes you to live a self-controlled, upright, and godly life in this present age. So here's what that means for you and me practically. It means that if you want to grow in love for God, if you want to overcome temptations and become a changed person who experiences victory over sin and joy in the Holy Spirit, the way to do it is by beholding the grace of God, filling your ears, not with wax, but with the sweeter song of God's truth to the point where it drowns out the siren songs of this world. And as you do that, By filling your heart and your mind with the truths of God's word, that sweeter song will make you desire him even more. You see, the third point here, the final one is this. God's saving grace in Jesus, it changes your identity, it transforms your affections, but you know what else it does? It sends you out in love to the world. Paul continues in verse two where he says, in hope of eternal life, which God who never lies promised before the ages began you see the hope of the gospel is not merely a hope of a better life here and now it's the hope of eternal life to come the good news of the gospel is that jesus christ defeated death it's the news the good news that in jesus there is hope beyond the grave that death doesn't get the final say that the end of your life here on earth will not be the end of you but here's the thing not everyone is going to receive this eternal life. Not everyone has this hope of eternal life. For those who don't have this hope, death is a dark and scary thing. Think about it like this. For those who have the hope of eternal life, the worst things that can happen to you in this life are the worst it will ever be. But for those who don't have this hope of eternal life, the best things that happen in this life, that's as good as it will ever get. And that perspective, I'll tell you what, when you have that perspective, it absolutely changes the way that you live your life here and now. Notice what it says there. It says the salvation which God has brought about for us through Jesus, it was promised before the ages began, and it was promised by God who never lies. People often ask, is there anything that God can't do? Oh yeah, of course there are. There are many things that is impossible for God to do. You see, God is all powerful, and yet there are things that God cannot do because to do those things would be to contradict his very nature. So for example, God cannot lie. But what that means for you and me is that if God has said that he will do something, if God has made a promise, then he will keep that promise because he cannot lie. And that's exactly what happened in regard to God's promise to bring a savior into this world to rescue us and save us from the curse of sin and death. That's why he says here in verse three, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God, our savior. The way that people will come to know about God's saving grace is through people like you and me. That's how. In his letter to the Romans, Paul lays it out very clearly. He says, look, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, but how can they call on him if they haven't heard of him? How can they trust in him if they haven't heard about him? How can they hear about him unless someone tells them? See, Paul's point here is this. God has given you a role to play in his mission of seeking and saving those who are lost. And our role, your role, it involves sharing his love and his truth with others. I want you to notice something. In the final verse of this section, look at what Paul says. He says to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Now we're going to talk more about who Titus was in our next study. But for now, I want you to see this. At the end of verse three, look at how Paul refers to God. He calls him God, our savior. And then at the end of verse four, he refers to Jesus and he calls him Christ Jesus, our savior. Which one is it? Is God our savior or is Jesus our savior? Do we have two saviors or is there one savior? The answer to that question, of course, is that Jesus Christ is God come to us to save us. One of my favorite verses to reflect on at Christmas time is Matthew 1, verse 21, where it says that Mary and Joseph were told, it says the angel told them, You shall name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. You know what the name Jesus means, Yeshua? It means God who saves. God who saves. You see, the answer to this question, it's not that there are two saviors. There's one savior because Jesus Christ is God come to us to save us. The actions of Jesus were the very actions of God to save you. When Jesus died upon the cross, God himself, the righteous judge of all the earth, was taking the judgment for sin in your place so that you could be saved. In other words, the entire story that the Bible tells from beginning to end is the true story of the God who is on a mission. From before time began, God has been on a mission to seek and save those who are lost, including you and including me. And I want you to take this thought with you as you go today. I want this to shape our church. Listen to this. Because God is a missionary God, for us to follow him means that we must become a missionary people i me to say it one more time. Because God is a missionary God, for us to follow him means that we must become a missionary people. You see, here's the thing. God loves you. He does. Absolutely. But he doesn't love only you. And Jesus came to save you, but he didn't come to save only you. The effect of God's saving grace in our lives is that now, just as God came to us in the person of Jesus, now by saving us by his grace, he sends us out into the world to spread his love and truth to others because his mission is not yet complete. There are more people who God loves and wants to reach, and he wants to do it through you. Just like in the story of Zacchaeus, when Zacchaeus experienced God's grace, it changed the way he related to other people. And once you've experienced the grace of God in your life, the effect it has on you is that you become a man, you become a woman on a mission. You realize that God's calling and purpose for your life is more than just pursuing your own comfort and pleasures. It's something much greater than that. He has called you to be a conduit of his love and truth to others in the world. Because God is a missionary God, to follow him means that we will become a missionary people, whether that's across the world or across the street. And when Paul says in verse four, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord, those words grace and peace, they're very significant. Because there's a kind of peace which can only come from knowing and experiencing God's grace. It's a peace that you can have even in the face of hardships. It's the kind of peace which eliminates fear. It's not a peace that makes you complacent. It's a peace that gives you confidence so you can boldly step out and do what God has called you to do. And the message of the gospel is that God loves you and he came to you in the person of Jesus Christ and through his life and in his death, Jesus suffered the agony of rejection and the cross, so that you can receive the grace of God's embrace that leads to true and lasting peace. And the way to receive that grace is by trusting in and clinging to Jesus Christ and what he did to save you. And as you do that, you will experience how God's saving grace in Jesus changes your identity, transforms your affections, and sends you out in love to the world. Would you please bow your heads with me and let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great love for us. We thank you that you are God, our Savior. And Lord, thank you for coming to us to rescue us. And Lord, we we pray that you would change our affections, Lord, as we seek and pursue you. Lord, change the things that we love, change the things that we value, align them with your loves and your values. Lord, we pray, Lord, that you would indeed help us to be cognizant and aware of this new identity that we have in you because of what you've done to save us. Help us to live into that identity and to put the old man, the old identity, to death. And Lord, we pray that you would indeed send us out in love to the world. Use us in this world. Thank you that we get to belong to the elect and as we put our faith in you. And, And Lord, thank you that you call us to be part of your work in the world. Lord, I pray for anyone here today who says, you know what, I'm not sure. If I'm part of that group, I'm not sure if I'm part of the elect. I'm not sure if I'm a, really a child of God. Lord, I pray that even now in this moment, Lord, you'd work in their heart by your Spirit, that they would trust in you as their Savior. They wouldn't just believe that, yes, you did that for some people, but they would believe that truly it was enough and it was sufficient for their sins. And Lord, I pray that those who are unsure in this moment would decide to follow you and have that assurance that comes from knowing that you have done it all.
0: You have been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Make sure to tap the subscribe button if you would like to have new messages delivered to your device every week when they are released. If you have been blessed by this message and would like to support our ministry, you can do so by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, or by giving a donation to our church on our website at whitefieldschurch.com.